So, sir, thanks for joining us today on Leadership Blog, which is a podcast uh, for the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center community on topics of interest. Yeah. And, and our topic of interest today is meeting you, the new commander of the Air Force Security Assistance and Cooperation Directorate. Um, so, sir, if you could introduce yourself to the audience and give us a little of your career background. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, as uh, as most people, I was born at an early age, right? Uh, but uh, I actually had the opportunity uh, growing up uh, to be overseas for most of my childhood years. So my mom and dad were uh, Baptist missionaries. My dad ran a 25-bed hospital out in the sticks of Africa. Uh, and so uh, I spent most of my formative years uh, growing, growing up uh, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, came back to the States when I was a senior in high school and... Uh, through uh, uh, various uh, various methods and, and means, ended up at the Air Force Academy. Uh, graduated from from there in '95 with a degree in engineering mechanics, uh, and then uh, went straight to grad school uh, in material science at Michigan State. Um, and then, uh, uh, believe it or not, when I called my uh, my functional to ask about my first real Air Force assignment, uh, he goes, "Well, I have three choices for you." Uh, you can go to Arnold uh, Air Force Base in Tennessee. You can go to Eglin Air Force Base down in Florida. Um, or you can go to uh, Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. And I'm like, and I, I literally have the pick. And he's like, yeah, uh, this may be the only time, but you actually do have the pick. So I mm-hmm. uh, ended up down at Eglin working in the lab down there. Um, and then from there, uh, spent uh, two years there at Eglin. Uh, did about three years in San Antonio working in the Force Protection Battle Lab. Uh, went to the NRO for about four years uh, doing satellite stuff. Uh, and then from there, uh, ended up uh, my first stint at, at Wright Pat, working in the Recce Spell uh, and uh, uh, doing airspace integration stuff with unmanned aircraft. Uh, from there, uh, got picked up for uh, intermediate development education up at MIT, spent a year up there, uh, and then uh, had a follow on uh, to European Command. Uh, spent three years there in their uh, J3 shop. Uh, back to Wright Pat, uh, where I was actually in the Air Force Security Assistance and Cooperation uh, Center right then, mm-hmm. and uh, did my first uh, material year uh, stint uh, in that job. Uh, had a great time. Uh, from there, ended up uh, getting picked up to go uh, back to school. Uh, so I went to the Eisenhower School, the old ICAP school. Uh, with follow-on to system engineering office and uh, and OSD, and then uh, ended up back down at Eglin, uh, working for their one-star General Morse in the uh, the armament directorate. Did a couple jobs for him there, and then uh, went to Hill and uh, did ICBMs for a few years. Uh, then uh, my last job was back at the Pentagon as a senior assist to uh, Ms. Costello, Dr. Roper, and then Ms. Costello. So I've had a uh, great ride. Uh, so what has it been like for you and your family transitioning back to the Dayton area? So you're, I mean, you're familiar with yeah. your previous assignments here. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? I, I kind of characterize the military lifestyle as that of the modern nomad. Uh, you you kind of pick up and shuffle around to all, all kinds of interesting and creative places. But uh, with uh, this kind of being our third uh, third return trip here to Dayton, it's kind of, it's more like coming home than it is uh, picking up and going to another unknown spot. Uh, so we were all excited to be back, uh, back in Dayton. Um, uh, it's familiar territory. Uh, we're Midwesterners, right? Our, our uh, com- combined and extended families are from Michigan. Uh, so it's, it's about as close to home as we can get. Uh, and besides, I'm a huge Graders fan. Uh, I, uh, I 
absolutely love Prager's. If I have a fatal flaw or weakness, it's it's ice cream, and uh, Grater's tops my list for ice cream. So wasn't thrilled like about that. Well, I, I share that compulsion with you. So uh, and Grater's uh, is uh, is excellent. Um, so I I was uh, we're here today because you've you've uh, taken over now as a director for the Air Force Security Assistance and Cooperation Directorate, but also dual headed as the Air Force Material Command uh, International Affairs Director, correct? Right. Yeah. And also, of course, your promotion to Brigadier General is, is a result of that as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I was wondering maybe you could address, I, I've heard about your talk about unleashing talent sure. as a leadership philosophy. If you could, tell us about this assignment change and, and, and how that philosophy has helped kind of guiding you in this new position. Yeah. So I actually started uh, putting some thought to paper on, on my own leadership philosophy about five years ago, actually when I was in uh, PMT 401, which is kind of the capstone program manager's course, right, to try to get you up to speed on what you need to do as, as a program manager running, running a large ACAP program. Um, and I realized as I was in that class that I, I probably needed to kind of sort out how, how I wanted to run a program office. And I quickly realized that uh, it, it was a lot bigger than just figuring out the, the tactical pieces of, you know, how your program managers are going to work with your engineers and your mm -hmm. finance, right, all of that stuff. And that it was really uh, a conversation that I needed to have with myself about what I considered my broader leadership and management philosophy to look like and then how I was going to execute that inside of a program office, but right the, the bigger principle involved is, is really from a leadership perspective. How did I view my role inside of that? Um, and, and so I, right, I spent some time while I was in that class kind of jotting down some notes about how I, how I would look at that. And I think over time, like anything else, you know, your experiences kind of help you evolve uh, your own thinking on things. And I've, I've updated that, that particular uh, piece a couple of times in the last few years. Um, but really, at the at the end of the day, I, I kind of looked at the the principal role that I have from a leadership perspective in an organization as as really giving people the opportunity to uh, to right, hit their stride, reach their full potential, uh, with kind of two basic uh, principles at work. One is the idea that excellence has to be an individual quest, right? You've got to want to own that for yourself. Right? I can't do that for you. Um, but assuming that. Uh, you, you have individuals that are fundamentally motivated uh, by uh, either their own intrinsic uh, desire to continue to improve or by the, right, the, the compelling nature of what we do for a mission across our Air Force, um, then really the, right, the leadership challenge inside of that is to find those opportunities that will allow those individuals to continue to grow right, and to excel, but then to find the right fit for them on, on the team. And, and the Right. If, if excellence is the individual quest part of that equation, then right, the way that I look at it as performance, the taking of that individual talent and actually doing something useful with it, that has to get done inside of teams. And, and so at the end of the day, our organizations are effective to the point where they put those teams together and then allow those individuals that, that are on that team to perform at their best with their strengths while the rest of the team then mitigates where those holes are, right, that we all have, so that you're bringing the best of the entire team to bear on a, on a given problem or a given solution. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so really, as, as, I, as I roll into the job here at AFSAC, uh, right, same philosophy. How do, how do we unleash the talent of the folks that are working around and for us? And then, right, how do we do that in a way that extends across the whole enterprise? Because there's a lot of different moving pieces inside of the foreign military sales arena. And um, in order for us to, to be effective, both as an Air Force and, quite frankly, as a department, when it comes to building those relationships, delivering on those commitments, it really requires the entire extended team to all be firing on the same cylinders together. Have you found any additional challenges as a result of kind of operating in a distributed fashion that we have during COVID and, and like that in uh, remote teleworking situations? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a huge challenge. Um, I think we've made uh, massive strides in, uh, in incredibly short periods of time with regards to how we're connecting people together via uh, Zoom or Chez or, right, I mean, pick your, pick your medium. Um, and, and I think we're, we're much, much better situated today than we were even a, you know, a year, a year and a half ago for being able to stay connected. Um, but there is an element inside of this that you can't really substitute for the, right, the person-to-person contact. Um, and I think, especially if you're coming into an environment that's new, where you don't have existing relationships and you don't have a basis for trust that's already established, Trying to build trust remotely is, is, a, is a huge challenge. Um, and I think as we continue to migrate what normal looks like into something that's more telework-oriented than it has been in the past, I think what we're going to have to try to figure out from the leadership perspective is how you generate the, the kind of performance that you achieve as a result of being able to build that track record and build that trust with people in a, in a face-to-face environment and how you do that in a way that's effective for uh, enabling, right, the rest of the, the dialogue or the discussion to happen in the remote context. Um, but I think, right, it would be short-sighted to think that we can do all of it remotely. Yep. Uh, I think there's large and significant portions of what we do that we can do remotely, but I think that has to be predicated off of the trust and the relationships that get built, and, I, and I'm not entirely sure how to do that in a virtual context, right? I think there's still a person-to-person element there that we've got to figure out how to do. Yeah, because even in your business in foreign military sales, a lot of times you have to interact with customers that are on the other side of the world. And so, and that still drives, sometimes you need to travel, go there and actually personally connect. Um, But I would imagine at the same time, some of the telework improvements have maybe helped make that a little bit easier. Yeah, I think there's a there's an interesting dichotomy inside of this, right? There's certainly the aspect of, of being able to more effectively transmit and receive in a virtual context that we haven't had in the past that I think absolutely facilitates our ability to engage in those conversations. Um, but I think the, you know, the other side of that coin is that generally as a culture, right, we in the U.S. tend to be more transactional in the way that we engage with um, with you know, people either from a business perspective or even in some instances in a relational context when, when we're talking about the professional environment. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think a lot of other cultures, uh, right, they start with the relationship, right, and then the business element gets added into that. Right. Uh, and so in, in some ways we've exacerbated that distinction between, you know, cultural distinction between how we typically think about business transactions as Americans versus the way a lot of the rest of the world sees it as a you know extension of a relationship that you're building. 
And so I think we just have to continue to figure out what that looks like and how we continue to exercise that um, effectively, right, as we, as we continue to deal with the COVID scenario. So I'm told that you're the first AFSAC director that was previously assigned to AFSAC, um, which makes you kind of uniquely qualified, perhaps, for the, for the position. Um, but even in your background, you, so you've had exposure from an early age with other cultures and yeah. dealing with in kind of international sort of relations. Um, so talk to us a little bit about uh, what it's like coming back into AFSAC as a director now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, repeat offender, right? Uh, it was actually, to be honest with you, a little surreal uh, walking back in uh, to the job. Uh, because when I left, when I left right Pat the last time, I literally walked out of exactly the same building. And uh, uh, in some cases, uh, there are still the same faces, right, that are that are working in exactly that same building. And uh, uh, so, yeah, it was a little weird uh, coming back as the boss and mm -hmm. uh, and rolling into what, you know, was the right the front office and, and to realize, uh, well, actually, it's, it's my office now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I will tell you that uh, I've been hugely, uh, hugely impressed with uh, not so much what hasn't changed, but with what has changed. Uh, they are collectively light years ahead of where we were when I left the place, you know, eight, ten years ago uh, from a, an execution standpoint, right? I mean, just hats off to the, uh, the leadership and uh, the whole AFSAC team for what they've been able to do over the intervening years. I mean, when I was, when I was an ML, Right, we were literally hand carrying around right physical hard paper copies of case files from desk to desk to desk to get stuff done. And if you wanted to know where something was, you literally had to go find a case file on somebody's desk. They've completely automated all that now, um, and right, the visibility and and the data that is available at pe people's fingertips, not just the director, but the whole team's fingertips for understanding where things are at, how how well things are moving through the pipe. And, and quite frankly, the right the status across the enterprise because it's extensive, right? Um, so much of the work actually happens out with the program executive officers as opposed to inside of AFSAC's four walls. That uh, having the ability to understand and, and know where the the actual specifics are on a on a given case with a given partner, I, I think, has just been huge. Um, so so that's been. Uh, you know, I'd say a pleasant surprise uh, coming back to see how much progress they've made. Um, and I'm just looking forward to seeing how we continue to leverage that and uh, continue to build on that as we move forward. Uh, if, if you could, um, we know that FMS, it's been on a big rise the last couple of years specifically. Um, for, our, for our listeners who aren't familiar with FMS and for military sales, what how would you explain it to a novice yeah. um, and what are the benefits of it to, to the Air Force? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so former military sales is, is really um, a component of what we do inside of the broader effort of um, strengthening our allies and partners, right, and, and the relationships that we have with them. Um, and, it, and it really plays out, I think, in, in a couple of different ways. Obviously, the, the first order effect is that uh, that partner or that ally is on the receiving end of right, U.S. military-grade equipment, 
that they are then able to use in order to uh, secure their own borders, right? So there's, a, there's an aspect of this where uh, right, having strong allies and partners is a, uh, has an immediate and direct consequence on our own footing because now that partner or that, that ally is able to actually um, right, facilitate things in their own part of the world with regards to right, what, what they need to do for their own security. Right. So, so that's kind of the immediate context. Um, I think the other uh, aspect to this that uh, often gets missed is that uh, right, those foreign military sales are, are generating funds right, because we don't do it for free. So, so by law, we can't make or lose money on the foreign military sales that we do. Right? It's got to be a, a basically cost-neutral proposition. So when a, when a foreign partner comes in and, and wants to buy something from us, right, they're buying it basically at the U.S. government cost. But the, the benefit that accrues to us at a, at a national level from, from doing that is, is really in the industrial base. And uh, in fact, there are uh, multiple aircraft lines that would be shut down and mothballed uh, and would have been decades ago if there hadn't been a continuing and ongoing investment in those aircraft production lines like F-16 and, and F-15 over the years from those foreign military partners, right? Um, so we have the, right, we have the benefit now on, on the Air Force side of being able to go in and buy an F-15EX, right? Uh, because we've had foreign partners that have continued to invest in that platform long after the Air Force decided to stop buying the F-15, mm-hmm. right? And so the only reason it's even an option is because we had those, those foreign military sales cases that kept those lines open um, and, quite frankly, continue to improve on those platforms. So the, right, the F-15EX capability that, that we're looking at going out and, and putting into play today is a far cry from the 15C models, right, right. that they're replacing. Um, and so we have that benefit as a result of those foreign military sales. Um, and then beyond that, quite frankly, uh, it, it, it turns out that uh, the engagement itself uh, and the, right, the process of going through foreign military sales with a partner uh, turns into an opportunity to further the, the relationship, right? Build the trust, uh, build uh, uh, the camaraderie, uh, the understanding and the knowledge of how that other partner thinks and operates and and then quite frankly gives us uh, a way of being interoperable when we do have to go fight together, right? So their equipment and our equipment are going to work in concert with one another because they're buying our equipment, right? And it's, and it's hard to overstate what that brings uh, into, into a fight as well uh, when it's, when it's going to be a combined fight. And I think if the, if the U.S. has any uh, comparative advantage on the world scene. It's it's the advantage that we bring because we have such a uh, large number of allies and partners around the globe uh, that we've established relationships with, that we've right, demonstrated commitment to, and, and that we have an opportunity, quite frankly, of, of being able to continue those dialogues through the foreign military sales arena. It's just like you said with the leadership, you know, a team has to have a relationship in order to function effectively together. It's the same thing, having that relationship with our foreign partners. Yeah, it, it's the uh, same principles, right, applied in another venue. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, right, uh, 
it's it's the human condition more than it is anything else. And uh, right, what and how do we build that trust and and confidence and uh, our ability to uh, deliver on our commitments, and then in a reciprocal right kind of a, a way understand that you know we've got each other's backs uh, when when the chips are down. So, sir, that uh, pretty much brings us to the end of our time. But before we close, I wanted to see: is there anything that we left out, or anything I should have asked you about, or? Uh, well, again, I I just like to uh, uh, to say how how absolutely thrilled uh, Heather and I are to be back at at, uh, at Ray Pat. Um, uh, we are thoroughly looking forward to uh, engaging not only with the uh, the Air Force team, uh, but quite frankly, with our foreign liaison officers that are part and parcel to. Uh, to the right pad AFSAC uh, scene and uh, everything that they do on behalf of their host nations to uh, you know, facilitate what, what we do on the foreign military sales side of this. So uh, looking forward to what's in store and uh, I'm sure great things are uh, coming, coming down the pike here as uh, we head into 22. Yep. All right, sir, thanks okay. again for joining yeah, us on absolutely. Leadership Blog. Thanks for having me.